Isn't it awkward talking about death? We're all going to die in the end, yet somehow death is still seen as one of society's taboos. Dead Good brings the conversation to the forefront by asking those questions you want to know but might have been too afraid to ask. I'm Sajila Kershi, and in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to some of my favourite people, from comedians, actors and beyond, about their experiences of death, and in doing so, challenge the taboos that exist within society. Today, we're joined by talented actress Evie Lockley. I had the great pleasure of working with her on a radio sitcom recently. She's currently living in Chicago and is originally from Ireland. I really enjoyed speaking to Evie. We covered a lot of ground, including Evie's relationship to death growing up and the funeral rituals in Ireland, the importance of having a little black funeral dress, the concept of cultural ceremonies, Evie's boyfriend being introduced to her dead grandfather, and how Evie handled dying on stage every night as an actress. Hi Evie, how are you? Hello, hi Sajida, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh my good, are we good? I'm really looking forward to this chat and thank you for joining us. I'm going to go straight in there. I know you have a Catholic background, so what was your experience of death growing up as a Catholic and are there any Catholic funeral rituals that you can share with us? I did, yeah. No, I was raised Catholic. I had a a balanced sort of upbringing of being, um, I went to a Catholic primary school and then a Protestant secondary school. So I got to experience both sort of different sets of funeral rites. Growing up in a Catholic environment in Dublin, I went to quite a lot of funerals. In my primary school, it did not matter who died, you went. If you met them once, you went. If you never met them at all, you go. When I would go home and fly home to see my my family, and if I was home for you know a brief jaunt in and around um, bits and pieces, I would come back, and the only time I might be able to see my mom, she'd be like, "Oh, listen, we've just got to pop into this funeral in the morning, and then we can go to coffee afterwards. So don't worry about it." And I'd be like, "Mom, who is this?" And she's like, "Oh, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He's a nice man. He's a nice man. It's fine. Just you've got a dress. You've got a dress. You've got a dress." I love that you were treated to coffee. That's the kind of deal sealer. Like we're going to go to the funeral and then we can go for the coffee, but the funeral's got to kind of like, we're going to just like picking up, let's let's pick up some bread on the way. It has to. And you might, you would fit it around errands. Like, honestly, I think my grandmother would always sort of fit in a funeral mass before going to do the weekly shopping. You know, there'd be something that she'd, she'd go to the mass, she'd be done and then she'd pop nip around the shops and then she'd be back home. There's something very... I think it's partially just the attendance is definitely like you just turn up, you go. Whereas I think in other, you know, in other cultures, if you're invited, you go. Whereas if it's in the paper, um, my mother is constantly checking out RIP.ie, which is a fantastic, you know, funereal sort of website. If you've never checked it out, do. But if someone has died and if you met them once, you go to their funeral. So it's partially the attendance that you go all the time from a very young age. And then the other sort of slightly tabooish thing is that there'll be a body. Now, not everyone does this, but most of the time you'll tend to have three stages to the funeral process at home. You'll sort of mourn the life, you'll celebrate the life, and then you'll have it come to pass. 
with the mourning period, you might have, you know, some of the wailing, the crying, the grief, as it were, where people are very overwrought, they might be overcome, and you can have sort of larger emotions that all come with that. And then when you celebrate the life, you tend to hear all the sort of slightly naughty stories or jokes and, and stories and tales about adventures they had when they were young or tall tales about about things that happened abroad. And again, normally both of those days would be accompanied with whiskey, possibly with music, some gossip. And then on the final day of the, the funeral, by that stage, you've had all your large feelings out. You know, you've cried, you've laughed, you've kind of heard something that you may not have heard before. And then by the time the funeral is finished and then you sort of tend to have a slightly more formal lunch or, or sandwiches or something afterwards, it feels quite settled because you've had all of these large experiences of emotions and then there's a formality and a finality in the funeral sort of process and then either the burial or the cremation. Yeah, I kind of love how you um, summarise it as a whiskey, music and gossip. Is the music kind of, is there a specific music or is it music that the person who's died loved or um yeah so it might be again it would sort of fall into slightly informal and then quite formal when you get to the the funeral mass you would tend to have hymns sometimes a choir and personally selected music that possibly that person has chosen or that their family members have chosen it tends to be um some it could be orchestral or it could be you know classical music but it also might be a pop song that they liked it might be something that was their favorite tune when they were young and um, in the morning and in the, in the wake and in the sort of in the home when people are in a slightly less formal setting and when that music kind of comes it might turn into you know somebody just singing on their own and then somebody might join in somebody might have a fiddle somebody might have an instrument I don't think it's necessarily planned to have that music and also you know again that would be normally something that would come out after the whiskey so you'd have sometimes it might mean that people need that whiskey to get to find their singing voice but you also have like very traditional old school sort of um, Irish singing called shannos which is kind of like akin to wailing there's something extremely you know, it's very, it's a very deep sort of breath sort of type of song and, and music. And that is, it's sort of reserved for such a very primal feeling as sort of grief and death. There's something kind of very uh, ceremonial about that kind of sound. So is that more a, a cultural thing to the region or is it, is it a Catholic, is it, is it seeped in faith or more this become like a ritual, you know, like a, a cultural ritual? There's such a really interesting amalgamation of what may have traditionally been pagan within Ireland and then what became Catholic as the two were married together. And so you have formal sort of songs and, and hymns that would come from the Catholic Church and then you would have folk songs that may by all means sort of be infused with Catholicism or so they would go hand in hand with each other but you would also have the type of songs and the type of music that came out of a, a pagan mentality and came out of sort of a much older sound. There's something kind of fascinating in that because when, especially by the third day, you may have run out of stories or you may get to the end of the night and people are kind of tired of talking. And that's when some of the music might come, you know, when when there isn't the energy left to sort of keep going, then something that there's in a quiet moment that that the music might come. And there's something that can't really be communicated in any other way other than through song that is really sort of magical to hear. And especially for 
you know, if you have someone that isn't necessarily very emotive, you know, they might be, it's lots of people are very private in their grief, very private, even in funerals and even in the passing of someone very dear to them. And so sometimes they might be, that might be the only way that they can communicate the fullness of their feeling is through the, through a very quiet song. And sometimes they may start the song and then falter and then somebody else will join or somebody else will take over the song and continue it. So even if that person who started the song wasn't able to continue it because of the, the richness of their feelings somebody else kind of carries it forward for them, which is such a a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's like a song relay race. I guess you're passing on the baton to someone else who can carry on. Obviously, I know that you're you're an atheist now and you don't have faith, but I know we've talked about this before, how you feel that even in spite of that, you still find comfort when it comes to death with those old traditions that you grew up with. So do you remember the first death that you experienced yourself and was that seeped in in the faith of how you dealt with it or was that like from a point of view as as, you're, as a non-believer there's such an interesting and fascinating effect that being raised in such a kind of a formal faith can have in being raised catholic you know i was baptized and i had my first confession and and communion and then confirmation and you know it's such a large part of growing up in ireland with with that faith and then it takes a long time to realize the full effect that that faith can have on you culturally how you relate to sort of belief in and of yourself and um, for me I'm not a person of faith. I would definitely be an atheist. But I think it's really interesting because it's informed my views on death and grief, definitely. It's allowed me to kind of observe what comfort can be offered to those in, you know, either dying or who have passed. And so those who live on afterwards, I definitely think, you know, from my understanding and my um, upbringing, that funerals are for the living from my experience and the ritual surrounding the funeral is is something that I I definitely appreciate even now without necessarily associating it with God so I appreciate the 3 days I appreciate the ceremony I appreciate you know the body I actually really interestingly I would have never thought that I would want to have an open casket funeral or have a body there but it's fascinating the comfort that it brings in those moments. If you go to awake, and so when you first see that person, when you know when with the removal they've been taken away, the body's been taken away, and then it's returned to the house in a coffin, and they're dressed and presented, and then that coffin is then in situ in a living room or um or a dining room or, or, or a bedroom or it's somewhere in the house, and normally then you would open the house to visitors and visitors come and see the body and pay their respects quite often touching the body and as a child you're encouraged to touch the body in a really interesting way you know to like squeeze a hand or or a foot or to give them a cuddle and it's very strange objectively it's quite odd but by the time you get to the burial that body is no longer the person that you love that body is the body. And for me, there's that ritual of separation between the spirit and the body is something that I I really appreciate. And I think whilst I wouldn't necessarily have a a high Catholic funeral for, for myself, I appreciate the distancing that it can allow the living to realize 
the person that we know and love is no longer here. Their body is left, but the person's spirit is gone. And whatever anyone sort of feels or believes about where that spirit goes or what happens to that spirit afterwards, I think there's something fascinating about that useful point of disconnection that can allow in that process. I find that fascinating, Evie, because there's so much in comparison. I've often compared, you know, in stand-up, like the Catholics deal with shame Oh, is it guilt? Is it guilt? No, is it guilt? It's shame, is it? No, guilt. And Muslims, Muslims deal with everything. everything. Guilt and shame. Yeah, so guilt, guilt and shame. And we have shame. Muslims have shame. But there's also the, <laughs> like the whole, you know, because there's a lot, of, lot, lot going, you know, there's a lot happening. It's just that you get forgiveness in this lifetime. You know, we have to wait till we die. There's some forgiveness. There's some forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, there's some for forgiveness. Yeah. We do have like, it's an interesting thing that you were allowed to touch the body and you can still touch it. Whereas once the last thing we can do for our loved ones is before we bury them is to wash them. So the women will wash a woman's body, you know, men will wash a men's body. And then once they've been washed, that's it. They no longer belong to this world. And so we can't touch them. And I remember finding that really problematic, not being able to touch my dad when they'd brought him into the house and like that you can touch them and you can still hold them. And I know that you've got that lovely story about kind of introducing your boyfriend, husband, to someone who's already died. So do you, do you want to tell us that story? Yeah, of course. Um, so my my partner is, um, is British and my, my family, my extended Irish family are all in um, from various points of Ireland, but they live outside Dublin. And during the pandemic, my grandfather and my granddad Jack um, passed away. And, or sorry, he died. My granddad Jack died. And we... It was before the vaccine. It was before anything. It was right at the, you know, when we did not w- know what was happening, but there was not a question. I was like, I'm going home. I have to go home. And, you know, we tested beforehand and I fully thought, I was like, there is no way I'm going to be in the house. I'll be at the back of the, I'll be outside the church, masked to the hilt. I'm, I don't care if I don't get to see, if I don't get to be inside, but I need, I'll need to go. I need to observe this. And I brought my partner, Dan, and who was my boyfriend at the time. And I brought him home. I said, listen, I would you don't have to come, but I would appreciate it if you came. And he's like, no, 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 we'll come. And so the full, my full extended Irish family were like, okay, grand, okay, fine. Oh, Jesus, has he ever been to one of these before? And I was like, I'm not sure. And again, we were all in masks and we were observing. And we got to my granny's house and we, you know, we're masked at the hilt. And I was like, listen, we've tested. We'll stay away from you. Don't worry about it. And she just grabbed me in this hug and was just like, come in, come in, see him, come in and see him. My grandmother takes up residency beside the coffin. She has this sort of very um, mid-century kind of Queen Anne style chair and she sits next to the coffin. Her hand is holding my granddad's hand. He is in, a, you know, buried in a suit. It's sort of a big lacy coffin. So there is a very old fashioned tradition where the body's not left alone. And overnight, the body is not left alone. Someone stays up with the body and they family members will normally take it in shifts. And traditionally, you say prayers over the body. And so it's so that the soul is safe before it's committed to burial. It's so that the body is there. But before the funeral, so the funeral rites, you know, you can have the last rites as a living person, but then the funeral rites are the final sort of experience of the soul, where the body and soul theoretically are sort of committed to the earth and committed to the heavens. But my grandmother is holding my grandfather's hand, not letting him go. So she's basically holding 
his sole hostage. Hostage. Yeah, you know, on her terms. He cannot go yet. Yeah, she's not leaving the room until he's met she's he's met his granddaughter's No, talk about husband. control issues, you know, like and while she's holding his hand, like both my grandmother and my grandfather, who are both Irish, they met in Birmingham. They met in Birmingham where they both went to go for work for the 50s. And my partner is from Birmingham. So my granny is holding on to my grandfather's hand and beckoning my partner over to be like, come say hello, come meet him, come meet him. And she's sort of trying to, you know, moving her head, kind of turning to my granddad to be like, oh, and you know, and he's just up in Mosley. Oh, we know that church. Yeah. And did you, were you born in that hospital? Oh, yeah, no, we know. As if he's still in the room. As if he's, you know, she's she's kind of moving her body as if to sort of relay this information to my granddad whilst he's in situ in the coffin. And then Dan is sort of, you know, this conversation keeps going. I, I have to ask, Evie, <laughs> how did that impact on your then boyfriend who is a processor and this is something new to him? And he, this may have been the first time that he's seen someone, a dead body. How did he react I think he was slightly uncomfortable and a little embarrassed. And then I think he was quite bemused. I think he thought it was because there was a point at some point, I think, later that day where, you know, again, all of the ants just kept running around going, Jesus, he has no idea. Oh, God, this may be terrible for him. Terrible. He's doing very well. He's doing very well for a Brit. He's doing very well. And there is a point where my dad turned and was just like, well, any other family gathering it's all of us together in that room. And he got to meet him. And it was just another day where all of us were in that room. It's just one of us was dead. Like that's the standard. Those are the people that we see every Christmas. Those are the people we see every every Easter. These are the family members that we all see annually. And this was the time that Dan got to meet him. It's just happened that he happened to be dead. And I think there was a point where my granny just kept talking to him. And so we had to kind of shuffle him a little stool so he could sit down and kind of sit next to her while she was asking him about, you know, roundabouts in Birmingham and how the city has sort of changed over time. And I think he was just trying to be desperately polite. And on the way home, I think he just completely snapped and caught the giggles. I think he was just sort of like, oh my God, it's just really strange. I think it's really interesting because when ceremony, when you're used to it, makes sense. But ceremony without the habitual knowledge is kind of just nonsense, you know, in the same way that when we bless ourselves, you know, touching the forehead, touching the right side of the body and then the left side of the body. And, you know, all of these things that if you grow up with them, that will feel second nature. And it's only actually when you have someone that is outside of a culture observing it going, why do you do that? Or why do you do this? Or, you know, it. and after the funeral, my grandmother, because it was in COVID and everyone was very, very concerned about the spread of COVID, we had a very quiet funeral. And that is a huge mark of disrespect, um, traditionally speaking. Like, you know, an old Irish curse would be like, I wish them a quiet funeral. It would be terrible. And you'd normally go to funerals that would have hundreds of people. And none of this sort of, you know, three people saying goodbye to someone. So very, very normalised. Death is very normalised. Yeah. yeah I, very normalised for you. Very much. Um, I have to ask, like, we, we wear white at funerals. What do you wear? We always wear black. Um, you wear, you, I think it's, it is slightly changing in more contemporary times. You just have to look smart, but it is traditionally you would wear black and traditionally you'd also wear a badge of mourning. 
for a time, like men would still have a black band on a suit occasionally. It's very old fashioned, but they would still do it. So for instance, my uncle would have a black band and wear it for, I think about a month after my grandfather died. But for me, you know, growing up, you always had to have like a good, like from a child, you had to have a good black dress, some smart black shoes. And so growing up, the idea of the little black dress was always, so you had it for a funeral. It was never that you would have it for a date or for, you know, a cocktail party. You always had to have a little black dress for a funeral. And I remember being in drama school and I would go to, you know, I I went to Arts Ed and it was a particularly bougie area of of West London. And I would constantly go to charity shops and be like, "Oh, oh, my God, I found this amazing funeral dress. And like delighted with myself that I found this chic little black number for the next funeral I'd have when I went home and my my classmates were like what so the charity shop black dress which previously probably lived as a wedding dress or a cocktail dress and has now been promoted or demoted I don't know to absolute promotion absolute promotion so you've you've given that you know you're basically given another dimension to the little black dress (laughs) exactly (laughs) That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. That brings me to obviously this is this is what you wear when you're living. You wear your little black you've got to have the perfect little black funeral dress everyone should. I love the idea that you mentioned when you know when we've been chatting before that you leave objects with the dead. Is that right? Which is surprising because obviously we, we we're told that we arrive in this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is you give to them when they die. Of course. I think there's a much more honest notion in being able to come into the world with nothing and leave with nothing. And there's a sort of a very Catholic, like, oh, but just in case, we'll pop this in the coffin, just in case you need it. So normally at some point in the funeral mass, there is an offering that is brought up for things to go into the coffin. I think normally it's about four things and it will vary from obviously from person to person. So for instance, if someone is young, if a young person dies, it might normally something to do with a sport that they played. It might be a CD or a poster from a band that they liked. For my grandfather, I think when for his funeral, there were golf balls and teas, I think in case he needed them in a, in a, golf balls and tees and a mathematical set because he had been an engineer and a novel from a a novelist that he read voraciously and I think there was something else I cannot remember what the fourth thing is but you'd normally have aspects of that person's life in sort of these small material mementos that might be things they enjoyed maybe representing a period in their life their work oh it was seeds that was the fourth thing, seeds, because he loved his garden. Seeds. So basically, we do know what happens to bodies when, when we <laughs> yep. put them in the ground. They, so I quite like the idea that there's there's mm-hmm. there's things growing out of, I love of it. you know, your granddad's body, basically. That's how I'd like to go. I'd like to grow up being a tree. Snap. I'd love that. I think there's, there's such a beautiful thing to think that, you know, again, not being agnostic and um, being an atheist and going, I don't know what's necessarily coming for me in the next life. I don't think there is a next life for me. But if I can be a little bit of fertilizer for a nice little, little set of peonies or, you know, a beautiful little plant or a beautiful tree that could blossom at some point. If I could be a magnolia tree in the next life, I would be delighted with myself. Yeah, me too. I'd like to be a tree. And then, you know, lovers could sit under it, have a picnic dogs probably well maybe I don't want the dogs peeing on it but you know I, I, it's like it's like you're carrying on living in some sort of 
milkweed way or at least helping others you know all the little wildlife growing and you're creating oxygen so i think that's a lovely thing um now obviously you know we've been talking about death quite a lot and grief you're obviously seem really comfortable with it because you've grown up with it being such a normalized thing in your family have you ever felt real grief with the loss of someone oh yeah um it's interesting i think growing older i think you're you know things are less fresh and i think when you're younger there's those first those the first bite of grief i think is very strong i think um when it first comes it's so it feels like such a grown-up finality that feels sort of unjustified to come to sort of intrude in your life in such a way that you, you know, narcissistically never think it's going to sort of happen immediately to you. Um, and there's something really interesting about when that the first flushes of it happen. When I was about 12, I think the first funeral I remember going to, I was probably about maybe seven. Um, I remember went to the removal of a friend's mother. She died very young. She was a very glamorous woman who smoked every day. And I just remember her stood outside a sort of school, like collecting her son from school. And she had these big sunglasses and she'd always be smoking. She was exceptionally glamorous. Um, and she died tragically young. And I remember going to the removal of her body into the church. And then later, my dad's father and stepfather died when I think I was about 14 and they died very quickly one after the other and then when I was about 17 my first boyfriend passed away he died and that I remember coming as such a such a huge shock it was kind of unfathomable and even though we weren't going out at the time even though we had grown apart I remember being kind of struck by this huge and also because partially because we were just 17 and our it was the last it was the summer before our final year of school and so our whole year kind of was just struck by this very sudden huge grief and we didn't know what to do with it I remember my friend calling me and saying he's died and I remember going what I think I was in a rehearsal for like an Amdram production of um of possibly Hello Dolly, which is kind of very questionable. But I remember getting a call from a friend saying he died and then another call from a, a boy I think I was then going out with who said, no, yeah, no, he, he has. We're, we're going to the house. We're going to the house to see, his, to see him. And it was such a sudden moment. And I remember he had been in a band and I think it was such a, we, like, you know, growing up, I didn't have any videotapes of people. We, do, you know, we were a very stringy family. Like we had no camcorders. We didn't have anything like that. But this person had been in a band. So we had a recording of him singing. We had a CD of his and it just felt so strange. This is all sort of, you know, pre-smartphone, but we had a recording of him singing and speaking and knowing that and being able to replay that there's such an element of grief when you're young, I think, especially because it's so overwhelming that you can really fall into a very maudlin, deep grief. And I think as we get older, that engagement with grief just changes form. I think, you know, when my grandfather died, I was so sad. I was so, even, even though, you know, you can grow up with death and you can grow up with the rituals of it and the formality of it and all of that can become old hat. But that sudden pang of grief of realizing that someone won't be there. And that boyfriend at the time, I think we had started talking about, um, I, I live in America now, and we had been talking about potentially getting married before we moved to America. 
And I suddenly had this realisation of, oh, he won't be there. I won't be pouring out a glass of whiskey with him. Then I'll be pouring out a glass of whiskey for him at the funeral. And we have a, a tradition of, you know, you pouring one out of the parting glass where you pour one out for the friends that cannot come. And sometimes you'll see that in sort of in, in film and television as well, where people pour out whiskey at gravesides or pour out bottles or leave bottles of whiskey um, in sort of in graves or in funeral, um, anywhere sort of that you might have sort of, you know, in memoriam. But there was something about the cold realisation of kind of going, that person won't be there. And I think that it weighs physically heavy on you, I think, until until the funeral. And then I think it's, I think it can ease. It gets a little lighter. I was just thinking when you told me that, I was thinking, hang on a minute, you're putting alcohol down. He was under seven. He wasn't 18. He wasn't legal enough to drink. So, you know, <laughs> I think that legality should carry on into death. Like he's still underage. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do. <laughs> oh, I think um, his funeral, we all went for a swift pint like immediately afterwards. And that and it was really funny. The pub across the road from the church did not bat an eye about anyone being underage <laughs> because they just saw this huge school funeral oh my coming God. in. And everyone was having either a pint of Guinness or a glass of whiskey. Yeah. Everyone. And there's not a, not an eye batted. I'm just going to say to the listeners, please do not, if you're <laughs> underage, drink. do not use, like, do not pretend <laughs> there has been a death <laughs> and that you're mourning to try and get underage drinking. <laughs> Oh, that is a bad advice, Amy, <laughs> bad advice. So listen, you have been a bit blasé about death, but d you, you do seem to be deeply terrified about it too. Oh, um, yeah. And is, do you think that is because there is there was faith and then, mm. you know, you've chosen not to have it? Like I'm in a similar position, you know, obviously grew up with faith, but then decided to not. And there is always the fear of the unknown. Are you completely at one with death? Oh no! No! Yeah, oh no! Yeah. I'm a I'm a giant scaredy cat, giant scaredy cat, and, and so is my father actually, which I find really interesting. We're both terrified, and it's really. I think you're absolutely right. I think it is um, a flat out, very immature fear of the unknown, and I think, a, and a fear of realizing that. For me, in my atheism, I think when you know, if I once once the pulse is gone. I'm gone. I'm checked out. I am. And whatever happens to me, I'm not here. My, my consciousness ends and I am dead and I'm gone. And because it is something that I've never experienced and we can't ever know about, it's, it, it's filled with this terror for me. And because of that terror, it's fascinating to me to see people and know people who are much more comforted by the thought of death because of their faith. Like my grandmother is very resilient in her fear of death. She absolutely believes she will be reunited with now her husband, with her family, with her friends, with people who have passed on before her, that in death there will be a new life for her, a new life ever after that will offer her comfort and ease. So it's really interesting that she is not afraid of death in the same way. Now, you just said the word passing, and that brings me to euphemisms, because there are another way that we try and normalize death and we I mean I, I've fallen into the trap myself during this podcast recordings I'll you know try and sort of like small it down as like, oh you know passing or when they left but actually it's death it's dead you know mm. the podcast is called dead good yeah. we will all die at the end they died do you feel that the euphemisms that are used to kind of almost hide 
death under another word are useful or helpful in any way? I think what's difficult is that whatever brings you comfort brings you comfort. And I think when someone is going through the deep throngs of grief, I think it's very tricky to try and correct their language or their usage when they're in the deep throes of grief, because that's just mean. Like, there's certain things that you're like, oh, actually. But in saying that, I think that calling things calling calling things as they are is actually really helpful. I think remembering that someone has died, it is a death. I think there's a real usefulness and a utility in that. I also, for me, I loathe the usage of, um, oh, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. <laughs> They've gone to a good place. You have no idea. Yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> Especially when it comes to a young person's death, a child's death. I think there's something really, really actually very uncomfortable about someone saying oh they're in a bit they're in a better place don't tell me they're in a better place they're gone yeah and I am a bereft of them they have left me and I will never see them again and I am so overwhelmed by that so don't tell me they're at a roundabout or a you know Mm. a merry-go-round not a roundabout a merry-go-round somewhere in another life you know full of the joys of spring when you're mourning their loss on earth I think it's very it's very hard to feel comfort in that and when you say loss this is the other another word loss you know um sorry for your loss we don't know what else to say sorry for your loss and I remember thinking when people say to say that to me, it's like loss. Where loss sounds like they've lost them and they'll come back, and they won't. And it's like it's a really strange thing. We try and give comfort. Sorry for your yes, it is a loss, but where have they gone? And it's like that perpetual question. But we haven't left them somewhere, you know. Like we haven't. Um, it's not like we've left them in the back room and we're going to find no, them no, somewhere. No. It's like oh, if I can just think about where I left him, or where did we leave her? Did we leave her in the parking lot? Did we? Did we leave her at the supermarket? <laughs> like we haven't. We're not going to find them again. And I think I appreciate the sentiment there. I think the loss implies also a slight weird blame in a strange way. Like you lost them. I found them. You don't have to say sorry for your loss anymore. Say is they're found. And you're like, I did not lose them. <laughs> yeah. They are gone. They are they are gone. Yeah, they're gone. But yeah, euphemisms, I, I, I agree. They're, they're probably there to kind of help us to navigate this thing that's inevitable for all of us. Now, you are an actor and, you know, have you ever played death or someone who's been bereaved and how did you find the experience and how, what did you do to prepare? So I <laughs> I actually used to joke about this with my mother all the time. If I told her, oh, mom, 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 I got a gig, I got a gig. I've got this great job. And she's just like, okay, great. Um, are you raped or do you die? Would be her two, like, her two immediate questions about the part. Because inevitably there would be something about, especially as a young actor, when I first graduated, I seemed to be playing a behemoth of either dead or dying sort of young woman. And I was told that that would just be my kind of casting at one point. I think in my final term of drama school, I was just told, oh, we were told to sort of march towards this casting director. And she said, oh, and she would yell out sort of like, oh, policeman, uh, you know, armed forces person, uh, up and coming young lawyer. Uh, And she'd sort of yell out sort of what she thought our casting was. And she said, cry face. And it was that I would have this, that that's what I look like, that I would have a face that would be crying all the time. And she's generally been right for the first, at least, you know, X amount of years of my career. When I first graduated, I played a part where I had to be drowned every night. And then later, a few years after that, I played Desdemona in a quite questionable production of Othello. And I had to die every night. And it was exhausting. And I think... 
there's such an interesting kind of question about where you bring yourself to in terms of the pitch of sometimes as actors in rehearsal, you can push yourself to a point of a very extreme place that actually isn't very safe for you to go to. And then the director will be like, fantastic, yeah, absolutely, that every night. And then you have to recreate it and do it again and again and again. And throughout this run, I would be dying every night. And when I would come home, I would be, I would sort of be in a strange little grief during that entire show. And every, and I'd slightly dread it every night when it had to come, when that final sort of act for me had to come. I also found that I could not date when I was dying every night, like at the time I was single, I think. And I think the idea of trying to feel the buoyancy of flirtation or seeing someone felt so alien and other to me because of the the scale of sort of having a death. I don't know. There's something about the flip side of a coin. If you have to go to X place, you can't go to Y. And I found it um, here. I think they're like in I'm just starting doing a show at the moment and they're so conscientious about people operating in safe spaces, which is incredible. It's a, it's a wonderful sort of privilege to be in it. But they, um, they said this wonderful thing in this workshop recently and they said, don't take yourself to a place that is not safe for you to go to. Only revisit things that are going to be safe that, you know, that you have an open door of access with, that you're happy to openly access anytime do not go to the unopened spaces and do not go to take yourself by accident to places that you didn't even know were there and it's the way that this um practitioner was saying you know we want to make work that as actors that you have a longevity and that you have a space to come back to so that you're not spent at the end of a run that you can be back to your own self afterwards so that you're able to make work longer term that you're not going to get burnt out in the same way and having that mindset has been really helpful to think of so basically an actor is protected from death on stage as it were in a way that a comedian sadly is not we (laughs) die so many deaths on stage so many deaths but of course you know you'd think after nearly 20 years in the business that they might you know reduce but you still every now and again when you don't expect it you die unexpectedly but no, I, I want to take you to the fun part of this uh, podcast, which is um, we're going to ask, how would you spend your last week on earth, Evie? You can do anything in that last week. What would you do? Anything. Um, crucially, do I have to spend most of it on a tube? Can I, can I, how much, it, do I lose anything in transport time or travel time? No, you can transport yourself anywhere. Fantastic. Yes, time, travel, transport yourself anywhere. Beautiful. I think I would want to spend it warm. I think I would want my bones to soften. I would want to feel sand underneath foot. I would want to swim in warm oceans. I think I'd want to do brave big things. I'd want to sort of jump out of planes and climb mountains and sort of feel and see some of the world that I may not have got to see by then if I haven't. I think I'd also want to spend as much time as possible with seeing family and friends, particularly that are all over the world now, um, you know, that are on the other side of the world that I haven't seen in years. I would want to be able to see shows. I would want to be able to, but only like, I think I'd have to be very particular. Like I'd want to be able to re rewatch, you know, a perfect show in my mind. I wouldn't necessarily want to go and risk it on a show that I didn't have a great time at. Yeah, but I also, I think that the, you know, I think I'd want to physically be able to sort of run the gamut, as it were. And hey, you've got your hot black dress. 
you've got your hot little black dress to go to the exactly. theatre and do all these things. Ready yeah. for the theatre. It, exactly. It'll take you transatlantic. It will see your family through. What a, what a little investment that turned out to be. Jump out of a plane. You're, it's good. Sees me through everything. <laughs> so what's your uh, fantasy funeral? And I know we've all had that fantasy funeral little kind of, you know, image in our head. What would yours be? Oh, I think so. For mine, I would probably want to have a humanist version of the Catholic funeral, if that were possible. And I think I might have to create that. I'm not really sure how. I would like to have the three days because I think it allows people time to process. I would want to do it sharpish. I think the hanging around for weeks after someone has died is, um, for me, very painful. So I think there's, and there's also the, you know, when stuff has to get organized, you you rally. And so I think I'd want, want it in the same time frame as a Catholic funeral. I'd want the three days so that you can mourn the life, celebrate the life and have it come to pass. So what three words or a short saying or phrase would you have on your gravestone? That's a tricky one. I think it changes daily. I think depending on what you're feeling that week. Um, Where are we this week, Evie? I think this week I would probably have there's an Irish sort of opening to a lot of te- like you know a lot of uh, traditional sort of folklore and tales in in the Irish languages uh, fado fado which is long ago and I think I would probably want long ago long ago right right this week I would want long ago long ago because I think there's something interesting about what happens in that time after death because if someone has died last week if someone has died 20 years ago. Recently, I went back to Ireland and um, I went around the the sort of the West Coast with my mother and my father. And we went to a place where our family are from. We went to Rathkeel and we went to the graveyard and found our family. We have not met this part of the family. We were not there for this funeral, but we went and found this tombstone. We were like, there we go. This is the family name, Grant, and they died then. And this is them and this is them. And this whole sort of little corner of this plot. And I just thought... There's an endlessness in death that is actually kind of wonderful. And this week, leaning into that would definitely suit. So fado, fado. Thank you so much, Evie, for joining us here on Dead Good, a podcast about death with me, Sajila Kershi. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, then please do visit our website at stchristophers.org.uk where you'll find resources and support on a whole range of issues. Thanks for joining us here on the Dead Good Podcast, brought to you by St. Christopher's Hospice. I've been Sajila Kershey. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>